Welcome, everybody, to another show. It is fantastic to have you with us today. And this is a very, very special show for me because we're going to have a chance to spend some time with um, a Hall of Fame. Now, we've had great players on this show. We've had all kinds of celebrities. We've had people that, uh, you know, all the way to general managers in the National Football League, head coaches in the National Football League. But we have never had a Hall of Famer. And today we are going to bring you a Hall of Famer. <laughs> this might be a little tough for me at times, but um, a Hall of Fame person on top of a Hall of Fame NFL coach um, next to my father, the single biggest male influence in my life, Dick yeah. Vermeil, uh, <laughs> the all kind of coach I am not. And, then, uh, and I'd say that, and you know, uh, God, we better get started before I mess my stuff. Hold on. All right. Um, Thank you. Coach, it all began in the Napa Valley in Northern California, Calistoga, California. Right. Grew, grew up as the son of a shade tree mechanic, as you described your dad. Right. And talk about what it was like growing up in Northern California at that time. And beginning to play football. That's where you played your first football. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it, John, it was, uh, I think, a real advantage to be the vintage, vintage I am then. Maybe not so much today, but then. Because we had a real freedom within a moves as a kid. You know, uh, not everything was disciplined. A lot of things were free for you to do, put your shotgun on your handlebars or your bike, ride through town, go up and go hunting quail on the side hill. You know, the next morning, put your deer rifle on, put it on the handlebars of your bike, ride up and go up and hunt deer all day long, come home at night, you know. We had such freedom. And, uh, you know, kids don't have that kind of freedom today. Plus, kids, everything kids do is organized by somebody else, you know. And we as kids growing up in Calistoga, you know, 1,800 people in town, uh, we organized our days daily by ourselves. And there's, you know, I'm losing a lot. At 86 years old, I'm losing a lot of my kids I grew up with. But uh, my, my first thoughts always go back to those kids and their dads. My dad was tough, hard-nosed guy. He got up every morning, went to work, came in at lunch. The garage was 25 yards behind the house. Came back at lunch, ate lunch, went back out at work till dinner time. But came, ate dinner, walked back out, went work after dinner. And as I got older, the, my responsibilities followed his. I'd go to work with him, you know, which I used to resent at the time. But now I'm, I'm thankful for it because he really taught me what hard work was all about. But everybody else's dad, all your kids' friends, their dads, if they saw you do something out of line, they hey, they got up your butt just like they, you were their own sons, you know. So you were always in a structured environment in terms of, being doing the right things, but you were free to do so many things as kids, you know, and I started playing football in the street, you know, and my dad loved high school football. And he always said that uh, you could lead a good life if you lived with the principles you learned being a football player from the coaching staff and playing the game and in and out of the huddle. And my dad was, I heard, do your job before I ever heard of Bill Belichick. Just do your job. Clean up your alley. Hold up, hold on to your responsibility. All these kind of things. Uh, but I think also that the toughness of my dad was good for me. You, you know, very seldom did you ever satisfy him. 
uh, especially in the work ethic type thing and the, the quality of the work you put your hands on and what you do with it. But uh, other things, it's a little confusing. But I think that gave me great structure, foundation. And then we, at my senior year in high school, Bill Wood, a first uh, out of College of Pacific, played with Eddie LeBaron and those guys, uh, came to Calistoga as head coach. 130 kids in the school, 20 kids on the football team. And he turned us into a good football team. You know, we we lost one game, still one of the bit toughest losses I've ever experienced in my life. And uh, he said to me one time, you know, you can play college football if you want to. Now, no one ever said that to me. I wasn't planning on going to college. I was planning on working my dad's garage. He was going to tear down the old barn and build a new building for Meal and Sons. So I said, great. So I went to junior college to caught up and had success my first year, and I walked on at College Pacific on a half scholarship. Well, they've turned me to, into a running back. Tom Flores is there, a quarterback, and other guys like. So I, after two weeks or so, I left and went back to JC. Played there, had a good year, and walked on at San Jose State and earned a scholarship. And that's where I met Bill Walsh, okay? And that's where, fortunately, I was exposed to Dr. Bronson, Bob Bronson, because he was one of those guys, he, for some reason, he liked me. And I was just, he was third string quarterback. The next year I was a starter for the next coach, but he uh, he saw things in me I didn't see in myself. And all of a sudden I'm getting an opportunity. My first head coaching job in high school, he calls me up and says, uh, the athletic director at Hillsdale High School is going to call you. It's going to be a good job. You just take it. You're qualified. You know, I'm in second year out. Of, I'm 21, 23 years old. So I, I take the job because why? Coach tells me to take that job, you know. But uh, those kind of people really influenced me early. And then once, uh, John, once in uh, high school coaching, which I love coaching football, but I recognized that I wasn't really excited about the classroom situation I was in my first year, nor was I excited about uh, teaching PE, watching guys shower and pop towels every day. I just my mind was continually on football. I wasn't excited about that stuff. So that from then on, each time I had an opportunity to coach more football, less teaching PE, I took it. And pretty quick, John Rawson hires me and Miss Stanford as freshman coach. And all of a sudden, all I'm doing is coaching football. From then on, football. So let's go through that. You go from Hillsdale, then you go to College of San Mateo, right? Once. Which is which just inducted you into their Hall of Fame. And has been uh, there have been some legendary coaches come through CSF. Oh yeah, yeah. Bill Walsh went through there. Yeah, Doug Scoble. I replaced Doug Scoble, who was the head coach. Cliff Given took over the. It was his assistant took over the head coaching job. We only had two paid two coaches, the head coach and the assistant coach. And uh, I I wasn't experienced enough to make a great contribution to the overall package that Doug Scoble was as the head coach. I was way behind in the passing game. I. I thought you were a coward if you threw the ball more than that. <laughs> so, uh, and so that was a learning experience. And I had the opportunity to go back to Napa College as a head coach. And it was a mess up there. And in fact, I turned the job down, came home, and Paul Wiegand, NFL uh, Cleveland Brown defensive lineman, uh, said to me, he was working there part time in the offseason. He says, You know, Vermeil, you, you ought to go up and take that job on. That's, that's made for you. So I went back the next week and said, I'll take it. So Carol and I loaded up uh, you all trader and about three or four of the, the College of San Mateo kids helped us, and we moved everything we had in a truck and went into uh, Coach Napa College. We won seven, lost two. 
I recruited every kid that could walk all up and down in the counties there. Had a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And uh, then on January 28th of that year, uh, John Ralston called me. They said, I'd like you to be my freshman coach. You know, Bill Walsh was working in Stanford. Remember I yep. said, an old yep. man. And uh, so I immediately said, yeah, I came. So we lived in our the first home that we actually owned, paid 17500 for it. And had to borrow $1,750 to buy the house. Uh, we were there six months, moved out, went to Stanford. And, you know, from then, every time someone called me, I took the job. I never applied for them. You know, it's amazing when you think about it, you hear that, you know, the story and how Northern California at that time had so many guys that were going to go on and be Great head coaches. You talked about Doug Skoll. You talked about Paul Wigging. You talked about Bill Walsh. I mean, about John Madden. John Madden. I said exactly. I was going right to John Madden next coach. It's a John Robinson. John Robinson. Yeah. There you go. I mean, it was amazing at that time. What a collection of great football coaches were yeah. the all growing up at the same time in Northern California. Now you go to Stanford and and coach with John Ralston, and I had the incredible experience of being John's defensive coordinator for Team Germany when he came over and coached yeah. in the in in Germany for their national team. And what an amazing guy. John Rolfe, special, special. Went on and was head coach of the Denver Broncos. You talk about a positive guy. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And he, he had great ability to prioritize what it was going to take to win and who he had to cultivate to create the culture he needed it. And at Stanford, he started with the president of the school. His better the admissions director, smart guy. <laughs> he can't play without wires, you know. No, and then now that he was now coaches, yeah. One of the all-time great coaches in the NFL. You get a call from one of the all-time great coaches in the NFL, George Allen. Right. He says to you, I want you to come and be my Special teams coach. And there were no special teams coaches in the NFL. You were the first special teams coach in the National Football League. Talk about that experience. Well, the reason I got the call was George Allen was a personal friend of Peyton Jordan, the head track coach at Stanford, who was our Olympic team coach, head coach of the American Olympic team. Great man, great man. And he and I were good friends. And he recommended me to George because they had coached together at Occidental College. Or Cowlitz in one of those small colleges. And uh, so George called me. When he called me, I was staying at a friend's house recruiting because then I didn't have to spend the money on a hotel bill. Our Stanford budget wasn't that great. And uh, I thought it was a guy playing a joke on me. You know, remember when you're young, a high school coach would call up, hey, coach, is it Barrett Bryant? I want you to be my assistant coach. So I thought it was. Somebody pointed a joke on me, and I kept saying, up, no, this can't be George Allen. You know, that, okay, over, well, over to Gilder, you do that on me. Okay, <laughs> no, no, all, no, he says, no, coach, this is George Allen. I'm in Long Beach, California, sitting on my desk right now. This is George Allen. Will you, I understand you're in Southern California. Will you come down and visit with me? Oh, my God. Yeah, I went down with him, and he hired me the, the day later. So that started it off. Okay, now, I remember you telling me this story about how thorough George Allen was. And that one, I think if, if I remember the story, Coach, it's been about 35 years since I heard the story. But 
you were in Chicago to play the Bears, and you were riding down on an elevator. Elevator, yeah. And he asked you about, did you have the punt returner catching punts on the east side of the field or one crazy thing like that? Uh, he said, did you check out the angle of the sun? Because our punt returner and kicker will be looking into the sun to field the balls. Do you know how it's going to be? And I, I, he's, then I realized why all the other assistants stayed away from him pregame. <laughs> Because he would he would ask you a question that there was no real true answer to. You couldn't answer that. No, how would I check the the one o'clock sun angle when I just flew in from Southern California? We walked around the field yesterday late afternoon. The sun was different at that time. But he would do that to you. He he was great at that. He I did the unbelievable research on John Mackey, the tight end from the Colts. Because George had a hunch that you could tell if it's a runner pass based on him. So he had me follow. Remember, we played six preseason games. I saw him play four of them live and scouted them in detail and presented the uh, report to George Allen. I says, Coach Allen, there are no tendencies or any kind of alignment, things like this, that we can detect and determine whether it's runner pass through a for recognizing where John Mackey is. And he says, that's great. I says, well, coach, what do you mean that's great? He says, well, the conclusion is there's no conclusion. That's great. <laughs> the conclusion is there's no conclusion. Hey, what's his answer? Coach, you know, I remember that, like my favorite George Allen deal is when he was head coach of the Redskins, the owner said, we gave him an unlimited budget and he exceeded it. Now, yeah. <laughs> That owner told me that one night. I saw I ran into was visiting that world heavyweight fight in Atlantic City. He told me that same thing. I gave him an unlimited budget and he exceeded it. But you know, he was the first. He was the first wanted to design a football building for pro football. The meeting rooms, you know, primarily say, you know, a lot of teams in the old days, like Mike stuff at the Bet Stadium, we didn't even have a weight room. You know, and the, everything was built multiple use and not for football. You know, and so he he built that first facility in Washington. You know, now they have one six times as nice. But he was the first guy to do that. He was the first guy to run a nickel defense. I was on the field with him in 1969 preseason game playing in Anaheim Stadium against the 49ers in a preseason game when he went to the very first six-pack ever played. And I wow. remember him discussing it. Now, maybe someone else did it, but it didn't get the publicity that George Allen gave it because he put, I think it was Jimmy Nettles, another defensive back. They had six defensive backs on the field at the same time on third down. No one had ever done that before. People, people must've just scratched their heads and said, what is that crazy man up to? Anyway, that's not possible. You, you jump back into the head coaching deal at UCLA, which is a school really you know, especially at that time, underneath the long shadow of USC, where they said it's a basketball school. John John Wooden was in the middle of his run of national championships. But you take that job and in two years go 15-5-3. But the crowning glory was a role. They hadn't won a championship in 10 years. You win a championship, go to the Rose Bowl. And this is back in the days on bowl games where if you didn't win conference championships, you didn't go to a bowl game. Right. So UCLA goes to the Rose Bowl to face the undefeated, 
untied and, quote, unbeatable Ohio State Buckeyes in the Rose Bowl. And damn if you don't beat them. Talk about this, lady. Remember, John, uh, we had an advantage because they had beaten us like 41 to 21 or something like that, 43 to 21 in in an interconference game uh, in L.A. early season. And that I think that made them feel a little overconfident. And by the end of the season, we were a really good football team, really a, a good football team. And we were running an offense that they weren't used to seeing in the Big Ten. You know, we actually uh, ran the Veer offense, incorporated in some pro football offensive line play and passing game. And, Mike, we put a wide receiver out in a wide slot, three receivers on the field. That's against the law in the Big Ten at that time, you know. <laughs> All you got to do is throw a slant, you know. <laughs> Anyway, and we made some big plays. But, you know, Wendell Tyler rushes for 170-something yards, I think. Well, John Shire is the MVP in the game, you know, who could run and throw. and uh, So that was a major upset. And that's when uh, – actually, I was with Jim Murray, the general manager, who made the phone call the Sunday after uh, – the Monday after the, the Rose Bowl win, uh, Sunday, because he's not in good health. I went to see him. You know who he is. Yeah, yeah sir. He, you know, they asked me if I was interested in being a head coach of Philadelphia because I told them no. I was not interested because I, we just beat the best team in the country and I think we could build a national championship program here and I don't want to move. And, uh, and I, that was it. And then that, that was a Monday. On Thursday, I went met with him. My coaching staff told me I'm crazy. George Allen calls me and says, Coach, you don't turn down an NFL coaching job. Chuck Knox calls me. He says, Coach, I waited for years to get my opportunity. He's offering you a job on the phone. You at least go visit with him. So I did. And everything they said, they did. And I went from making 30000 a year to 50000 a year. God, I thought I was rich. You know, and I, we we won the Rose Bowl. J.D. Morgan, we were making thirty. J.D. Morgan says, good job. I'm going to give you a raise. You're going to make $32,500. Imagine what it is today. $32,000 for beating the, the Ohio State Buckeyes. Yeah, amazing. And, wow. fortunately, I, I ended up taking the job. And it, it was a, an unbelievable thing, you know. And, well, you were here, you know, you were coaching in the area. And it, it was a challenge. No first, second, third-round pick my first year, and they'd been losing. No first and second or third round pick the second year, and no first or second my third year. So there are eight quality football players that you don't get, you know. Uh, but we train we train differently than they normally did in the NFL. I, I uh, went a spring practice routine in college into the NFL. All right, now developed a lot of good players. I I worked with one of your players at that time <clears throat> at Louisiana Tech later on. And you know me, because I'm a I'm I'm the head I'm like the head cheerleader for Dick Vermeil. So I'm Petey Payroll is oh, yeah. Petey play yeah. card for you. Yeah. And he said those were the toughest practices he ever he he said he said you he said you ground them and toughened them up and you, you didn't could you couldn't get new players, so you had to make the ones you had better and tougher. I remember Pete Perot, okay, we drafted him in the second round, 245 pounds. That was a big guard. Yeah. And Jerry Wamper and Kenny Iman says, we got to get this guy. We've got to take this guy. We needed a guard. Woody Papel getting was 
old and going to retire and that kind of stuff. So we draft him. When we get in training camp, he can't pass protect his grandmother. He <laughs> is absolutely tip. Well, how does he get better? Practice. Six preseason games and three weeks prior to the preseason game to take this guy and make an offensive line pass protector out of you coaches, you got a lot of work to do. And you know they did it. He started as a rookie and yeah, he you know, he started because he was tired. Yeah. And he could take the tough practices. And he instead of moaning about it, he got better about it. And you know, at the end of the year, he's playing against the best defensive tackle of football in an NFC championship game, holding his own. But he couldn't do that when he first came to Dread again. So let's you know, we're in the middle of a reclamation project here, building a program back again. When you went to Philadelphia, and I don't know the exact number of years, but it was over 20 years since they had won. I didn't talk since they'd been in the playoffs. Yeah. And what was it like to go into a program in pro football with veterans that's that downtrodden, that's that far below everybody else? Let's talk to talk to me about your first meeting when you stood up in front of them and there's Bill Berge and there's, you know, all, all those yeah. veterans and you're a young, young coach, Southern California guy. I mean, it, it must have been something. Well, fortunately, I had 100% control of anything to do with football. And I knew that Leonard Toast was tired of firing general managers and head coaches. And he was going to let me do it my way. And I told him, I said, Leonard, I'm not interested in buying a football team. I'm interested in developing one. And with the situation as we have, the mistakes that have been made with draft choice in that, because a lot of the players that they traded for within draft choice weren't there. I mean, I cut most of them. I knocked Bergy, okay. Even there's Dan Waters. Those are two of the only two guys. And they had all the first-round choice, even Barella. I let him go for the second year. And he could play, but not fit with us. And uh, so uh, I said, the only way we're going to do this is we're going to go to work. We're going to go to work. And uh, they did. You know, unfortunately, Bill Berge bought in. Tough guy. And you couldn't make it tough enough for him. You know, he's just, that's, you know, he's grew up, made a living cutting firewood. His family did. Okay. He came from nothing. And, uh, you know, Harold Carmichael, humble, those guys, and, uh, you know, Jerry Sizemore, tough as nails, first-round pick. Stan Walter was there. He didn't enjoy it, but he did it, became a Pro Bowl player. Then we got more. Yeah. Guy more. That's a Yeah, got uh, it. They were there, and they, they gradually bought in. When people recognize that the effort they're making is helping them get better, it quits becoming a form of punishment. They start embellishing the fact that they're really gaining something out of the effort they're making and uh, how we structured it and how we disciplined. You know, my attitude was always, you make them better, tougher on the field, you make them happy off the field, you know? And uh, I think they started recognizing that. I remember Bill Berge loves to tell this story. It's his first training camp because I've been at banquets when he's told it. Here's the best player on the team. They gave up two first round picks for him. And we have nine on seven. We film everything. And he stinks in this nine on seven. It'll work. Chet Jacobs, I call him in. 
after after the uh, midday that morning practice, I put the film on and run the nine on seven film back. And he looks, he he stinks, he's terrible. And I said, now Bill, I want you to recognize about six or seven of these guys that are kicking the shit out of you. I'm going to have to cut at the end of the season, and they're all going to say, why in the hell did he cut me? I was whipping Bill Berkey's butt in a nine on seven drill, and you know. Bill walked out of that, and I never had to talk to him about practice effort again. Never. Never. Well, and first, I'll tell you the okay. other thing about him. I'll finish it, Bill Berge's story. He comes in in uh, 80s. His contract is up. He comes into my office. right across from Leonard Dose's office, the owner. And he's his own agent. He says, Coach, i got to talk to Leonard about my contract today and all that kind of season's over and then we were pretty good we got beaten super bowl all that kind of thing he says what do you think i ought to do i says bill i'll tell you what no matter what he pays you it won't be what you're worth okay so he gets a grin here and here confidence walks in the owner office sits down and he tells the owner that coach Jim told me no matter coach Vermeule said it yeah Coach Camillo told me, no matter what you pay me, it won't be what I'm worth. Well, he walked out of there the highest paid defensive player in football for a while. Okay. And Leonard Toast called me in, and you know, he very seldom ever got mad at me. And he wasn't mad, but he, he his tone of voice was structured. Don't you ever do that to me. <laughs> Bill, I, I was with Bill. Uh, he was with me when I got uh, my suit, a Hall of Fame ring last Monday night, sitting in the booth with my family because he had been working a booth as a paid signing autographs and all that. And then he came in and sat with us. And um, he loves to tell that story. He, that, he, he loves to tell that story, but he learned. That, that is classic. Now, it, gradually, gradually, you turn it in Philadelphia. And you, Wil, you Wilbur Montgomery comes in, you trade and get Jaworski, your football team, you really get a great football team. But one of the things that was tough was getting over the hump with Dallas. Yeah. The Cowboys were, and I think that that time right there, I think, Coach, really was the beginning of the intense rivalry that is the Cowboys and the Eagles, even to this day. Talk about that first time you got over the hump against America's team. Well, you know, from day one in training camp, I talked about someday we're going to beat the Dallas Cowboys and why we're working like we're working without the, they've been beating us all along and they have first and second, third round draft choices and we don't. The only way we're going to beat Dallas Cowboys is outwork them. And uh, so that every, every, that once the season started, I quit talking about Dallas Cowboys. In 1979, fourth or fifth game of the season, we're a good team. We'd made the playoffs the year before, first wild card game. And uh, we're playing the Pittsburgh Steelers in Philadelphia. They're world champions, undefeated. They come to town four or five and zero, oh, and we had lost one. And we beat them, huge. And from that time on, that football team felt everything we've done was worthwhile. Let's keep working. We'll win it all someday. That's how they. That's their old mindset, and uh, they just hung on to that. And they were, uh, you know, very easy to coach from then on. They expected to be pushed, you know. Today, you know, everything is controlled by the players. You know, 
the amount of time you're on the field, the amount of meeting time, the amount of contact work, the amount of double days you can have, the, all this kind of stuff. See, we we as coaches had total control of we felt what our this individual football team needs. Today, it's much tougher on these young guys taking over jobs. It's all based on personnel and free agent signing and just getting better players rather than making your players you have better because you don't have the access to the draft choices in free agency. But, but uh, I learned a lot about people at that time. And, you know, we let Charlie Young go. Okay, that's how we got Jaworski straight across. First round, all pro tight end. Put Keith Crefley there. No one even knows who he is. He, he, he'd buy the head off a rattlesnake, that guy at that time. He'd tough, intense, hard-working guy. And a damn good football player. You know, he started every year after that. You know, so we were able to fill it in with a profile that fit what we were doing. Woody Peoples came in. Uh, uh, what's his name? Mike Giddings, pro scout, recommended. He said the 49ers said he's too old. He's finished. He was like 35. He played three years for us and played extremely well. But the other thing he did, he and Claude Humphrey, they they would work. They would work. And the young players couldn't keep up with them. You know, Claude Humphrey just passed away this past year, Hall of Fame defense. At 34 years old, his first year with us, he got 14 sacks. At 35 years old, 1980, he got 15 sacks. Wow. wow. His work ethic was unbelievable. And it just solidified everything we have been teaching and coaching. And what kind of people are uh, – there were three good football players when you get one like that. They're real, they really make a contribution within the entire locker room. Okay, Coach, you get over the Dallas hump. You beat them in the NFC Championship game, and you go to the Super Bowl. Yeah, remember, we, the first time we beat it was no, uh, middle of November, Monday night game in Dallas. In Dallas. And that was huge win. But the Pittsburgh Steelers game the year before told us we could do that years later. And, and that, yeah. But anyway. You take the Eagles to, to a place they've never been before the Super Bowl, the championship, the NFL championship, the world championship, whatever you want to describe it as, and you're going to play the Raiders in New Orleans. And, you know, I always say, I, I would say this to players often, the easiest thing to get in pro football is a label, and the hardest thing to get rid of in pro football is that label. And you got labeled as a guy who overworked his football team. I did. And, and you, you guys went to that game, got beat, I think it was 27-10 if I remember correctly, but it was it was a sound beating and the press got after you for being so for being too tough on your football team. Mm-hmm. How did that how did you respond to that, coach? You know, uh I it wasn't a, a a factor or a a communication system that I even listened to. Okay? Uh, John Wooden told me that a long time ago. He said, "Coach, when you're coaching football, in L.A., like you are, says you don't listen to the media, you don't listen to the radio talk shows, and you don't read the sports paper. It's what they say about you is good, probably isn't all true. What they say about you that's bad is probably isn't all true. So you don't need you don't need the distraction. So you don't. And I just stayed with that. For the I still operate that way. I still operate that way. And uh, but that situation, you know, two weeks earlier we beat Dallas. You know why we beat Dallas is because of our work ethic. Okay. But, it doesn't matter how you lose the Super Bowl. There's going to be a defined way that you lost by the media. 
That's just going to happen that way. They're going to tell you why you lost the game. And they, and you know, I did a thing yesterday. I was here for a three and a half hour interview well, yesterday with the whole crew from the Raiders, Las Vegas. And they're doing a big story. Up there. Al Davis, Tom Flores, John Madden, and the Raiders. And they talked about that game. And, you know, everyone says, well, I overworked them. Uh, I, I, as I look back now, I should have, and I would today if I was doing it, the second part of a season taper off a little bit, which I didn't do, uh, which I, I would do today. I was always afraid I didn't have them prepared to play. I would rather have them tired and prepared than unprepared and fresh. Okay. That was my attitude. Okay. So, that That's going to take us to a topic that I think is really, really important. And um, because you talked about you were concerned about they weren't prepared. You were concerned that they weren't ready, that you hadn't done enough. Mm-hmm. And that mentality, which drove you to be a great football coach, I hope so. So drove you out of football. No question. I remember, Coach, um, you said to me one time, and I and and I when you came out to Montana that time to coach the coach that all college team with us, we were riding back to the elevator. I mean, riding back to the airport, and you said to me, I see too much of me in you. Just remember, this game will eat you alive. Yeah. and in Philadelphia, it ate you alive, and you had to step away. Yeah, talk about that experience. Well, you can get so the passion becomes an obsession, and you take everything personal. See, and I the way I was raised, you there was no such thing as an excuse. Okay, you just there was no excuse for not doing it right. Okay, so I, I had that mentality, and I I got I got so that if we won a football game. That the thrill of the win only lasted until I got on the bus to go home or the car to drive home from the home stadium. By the time I got home, I was worried about next week. And Carol would say, my God, you just want a football game, relax and enjoy it, might enjoy it. And then the opposite happened to me. Well, if I'd lose a football game, I'm at Wednesday and Thursday, I'm thinking about what I should have done last week to win it. Because every game we played was one or two plays away, we could win it. And I would be thinking, and that would interfere with my process of getting the team ready to play the next one and and i just and i uh, i i got frustrated with myself I, I i would try to discipline myself sid gilman would walk by when he would leave at 10 o'clock at night okay i'd sleep in the office and he would say you know dick no matter how many hours you look at that film there's only going to be 22 players on the field and only 11 of them are against you he said you know and uh but i i think that was my own insecurity you know and uh uh, just my nature, uh, you know, and I didn't, when I decided, Carol decided the night before the press conference uh, that I was getting out, it's time. I knew I had to, but I didn't want to make the decision. She says, well, I'll make it. We're getting out. We are getting out. I said, what the hell am I going to tell him? She says, just tell him you're burnt out. Now, she didn't know what burnout meant, nor did I. Okay, but that's what we did. Now, a few weeks later, Dr. Freudenberger, who wrote the book on burnout, uh, uh, in New York, in a famous book, okay, calls me up and wants to interview me. So I got out of the train and spent a few hours with him in New York. I get home, I said, Carol, how much time did you spend talking to the doctor? She said, I don't even, I've never talked to him once. He pinned me down. He, it was as if he wrote the book about me. But, you know, I later found out in speaking engagements with major corporations, uh, 
a lot of people work themselves into that state. But they don't read about it in the sports page. You're seeing it on Sunday on national television that there's a difference there. And, uh, and uh, I've had guys say, um, I mean, multi-billion dollar corporations say, if they weren't paying me so much to run this company, I'd quit this freaking job tomorrow. I've had it to hear. And we talked. I walked out of an upstairs room at a conference center with the, the guy making millions of with tears in his eyes. Just a mess, you know. But it, so I, I realized it can happen to anybody. And uh, it happened to me. And uh, fortunately, you know, you get older, you mature. And I got some professional help for a year. I, I met with a, a doctor here in town, and he he, he was really good. To, I could hear myself talking, you know. And when you talk to somebody else and don't hear yourself, you're not listening, you know. And uh, he really helped me. And I didn't go back into coaching for 14 years. First off, I went from making 75000 a year at that time coaching the Eagles to 150 working 16 weekends. Yeah. yeah, I was stealing for a living. I was, I mean, it was so nice. So, And I was around a lot of good football coaches. The first five years, I did 90% of my weekends were NFL locker rooms. You know, Tom Landry, Don Schuler, yeah, Bill Parcells, uh, Bud Grants. All I was in their locker rooms and I had free access. There were times when they wouldn't allow anybody with CBS in the building except me. And I'd go to practice. I said in Don Shoes quarterback meetings, I, I mean, I had free, and I got to say, you know, geez, I see why I wasn't good enough in this area. He's doing a lot better. Or, you know, I would, I think the way we were doing is better. But you, then you watch Don Shula run a Friday football practice. Yeah, that's generalizing hour. Correct. He's way up here. You know, you, you walk off say, wow, that's a real football coach. You know, it just, so I learned a lot. Then you get into college and you see Bill Snyder coach at Kansas State. You go watch him practice. You can't tell his practice team isn't starting the game Sunday or Saturday. You go watch Tom Coughlin at Boston College. You talk about football coaches. Best I've ever seen coach to this day. It's, it's good or better than any in that poker. And, but, uh, I learned a lot from those guys. Also learned a lot from sitting in a locker room, talking to players, especially NFL guys. It's, uh, I, don't know, I tell the story often sitting in Detroit locker room day, they're playing a big game the next day. The superstar walks by and I'm sitting next to an inside linebacker. who was a man's man guy stud stud. You would know him dead his neck. And I said, well, they're quite boy. He can really play. He says, yeah, I'm coach. If I were a head coach, you wouldn't, I wouldn't have him in my locker room. He says, discipline? We have no problems with discipline because we don't have any discipline. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what this star football player told me. So I, it, all these kind of thoughts, I said, you know, you've got to have structure. You've got to give the best discipline. It'll trickle down. I've worked in organizations where all the guys down here, the second, third stringers got disciplined and starters. Oh, geez, you made him think that's too bad, you know? And, yeah. you know, so uh, I learned a lot from listening to players talk. And uh, when I went back into coaching, I wanted structure and I wanted discipline. But I wanted to discipline the things that that players could recognize make a difference in winning and losing, not just artificial things, not just things that, sure, and some of it does help, trickles off. Well, you know, how you sit in your chair or if you wore a tie on the airplane or, I used to be all over that stuff, 
all over that stuff. Or what the shoes you wore. And John Bunny used to tease me all the time once I got to know him. He'd get all dressed up in the suit, work down the suit, get on the plane, you know. Uh, and it would piss me off. And he knew it, see. But I, I learned to recognize what really has to be disciplined because we're coaching different age kids, you know. You know, we were raised by parents, that great generation. And people have the Second World War, players and, and families and that kind of stuff. But they're all different today. So I, I learned to make sure we disciplined the things that really make a difference in winning or losing, and structure it and build it around that and, and be able to laugh at certain things in that. Because you can you can burn your own players out on too many things that have to be exactly right. But if you get the exact things right, yeah. Like and then as a head coach coming back, I knew I couldn't be my own offensive court. I'd been out of it 14 years. Uh, but I knew what I wanted. Yeah, and I had a great, I had the oldest staff in football, Bud Carson coaching the defense. Bud Carson came in one day to me and said, you know, he's world, four world championship, Pittsburgh, and he, the guru in Philadelphia, you know, he says, coach, I have never, we're losing. I have never had so much fun coaching. I said, what do you mean? He said, no coach has ever given me this much time to coach. We are always regulated by, you get 12 minutes here, 15 minutes here. And well, I just, I'd say, coach, how much time do we need to make this guy better? You know? All right, now. He loved it. Yes. I wanna I wanna I wanna stop the first part of the interview there because I wanna go I wanna use the second portion to really dig into coming back after 14 years and how the game had changed, how you had changed, and how you had grown. And we'll do that on the next portion of the Jeff Reinbold show. <laughs> 